Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is the first of what will be several episodes devoted to releasing the speaker's talks from the 2016 RipperCon Jack the Ripper in True Crime Convention that took place at the Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore in the USA over the weekend of April 8th through the 10th, 2016. For the slideshows that accompany the talks, please be sure to check the podcast page at casebook.org as they will be there free to download if we were able to get them. First up is Makita Brotman, a professor in the Department of Humanistic Studies and the MA Program in Critical Studies at the Maryland Institute College of Art, as well as a certified psychoanalyst and volunteer at the Prison Scholars Program at the Jessup Correctional Institute, which is a maximum security prison in Maryland. She is also the author of several nonfiction books, and her latest work, titled The Maximum Security Book Club, will be published this June. Visit her website at MakitaBrotman.com for a full list and links to all of her books. Ms. Brotman grew up in Sheffield during the time that Peter Sutcliffe was an active serial killer, and her experience as a young woman at that time and place makes for a very interesting talk on the Yorkshire Ripper. So without further ado, let's turn it over to the Master of Ceremonies, Robert Anderson, introducing Makita Brotman and the Yorkshire Ripper. Our next speaker is Nikita Brotman on the Yorkshire Ripper. Uh, Nikita Brotman is a psychoanalyst and professor in the Department of Humanistic Studies at the Maryland Institute College of Art. She's the author of Meat is Murder, a study of cannibalism, Smith, a myth, crime, and film, and the true crime collection, 13 Girls. Her next book, The Maximum Security Book Club, Reading Literature in the Men's Prison, will be published in June 2016 by HarperCollins. Nikita, thank you. And I have um, another book called 13 Girls, which is, and I have some copies of it on the table over there, which you can take if you want. Um, and it's... Um, it's not about the Yorkshire Ripper victims. It's 13 fictionalized um, accounts of victims of um, serial killers, real serial killers that you'll probably recognize since you're all true crime aficionados. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. So uh, my talk is about the life and times of the Yorkshire Ripper, and I will... Um, it's my turn to... Um, Get annoyed with David. <laughs> getting slides wrong. So um, when I just say next slide, you just go to the next slide, okay? Um, so I'm interested in um, how the um, how a, a serial killer seems completely aberrant and monstrous at the time, and yet in retrospect, um, seems in retrospect we can see that um, that particular killer is completely endemic to the time and place in which they were lived. And, um, and so I'm going to talk about the, the Yorkshire Ripper because I was born and grew up in Sheffield um, when the Yorkshire Ripper was active, and it's, it's really interesting to me looking, looking back to see how, how well um, the crime, um, crimes fit into the society and, and how, um, how little of an aberration he, he was. So first of all, the idea of the, the notion of the, the use of the word ripper. Um, so there have obviously been other rippers as well as Jack the Ripper. Uh, so the next image, David. 
Um, just a few other rippers. Um, anyone familiar with the Atlanta Ripper? This was a serial killer um, who was active in Atlanta between 1910 and 1912, who killed only African-American women, um, at least eight, he killed at least eight, um, possibly as many as 20, and um, um, to, to, to be known as a ripper, one has to rip, obviously, to a certain degree, so anyone who cut the throat, um, as this ripper did, um, there were rumors that this ripper actually cut out the female organs and and um, eviscerated the women, which he actually didn't. But uh, there were other there were other murders at the same time that were also attributed to this ripper. I mean, there obviously was a serial killer active between 1910 and 1912 in Atlanta um, that that was slashing women's throats. Um, and during this period of segregation, um, it, it was a long time before the police realised this, this was happening. Um, but this, um, this killer was known as Jack the Ripper or the Atlanta Ripper. Um, then there were other killers who tore up their victims in such a way as to earn the descriptive nomenclature include um, the Blackout Ripper. David, can we have the next one? I'll just say next. The Blackout Ripper was uh, Gordon Frederick Cummings, an English spree killer who murdered four women during air raid blackouts in 1942. And... Next, the Camden Ripper, an alcoholic drifter, who's known as, uh, his name was Anthony Hardy, who killed and dismembered at least two women in London between 2000 and 2002. But, um, well, it takes more than just ripping to be a ripper. So next, um, it takes um, ripping within a limited place and time and... Um, I don't know if this laser pointer works, but there's a... Well, you can kind of um, see the red outline of, of Yorkshire there. Um, and um, actually, that's West Yorkshire, so just the red outline there is West Yorkshire. Um, and most of the, um, the Rippers' active years and hunting ground were limited, though far less so, of course, than the White Chapel the Whitechapel murders. It doesn't matter. That's the only slide that I that I wanted it for. But you can probably see, you can see the red um, the red outline there, which is yeah, the, that's um, West Yorkshire. And if thank you. And if um, I think you might, David, are you going to talk about the Red Riding um, murders tomorrow? So it's also known as the West Riding of Yorkshire, um, and that's most of the um, the Ripper's hunting ground. I, I think that's just, that's not working, but that one is. Oh, okay. Sorry. And um, it's, um, and most of his um, um, victims were killed between Bradford and Manchester. Um, man, um, obviously, Manchester's a little bit outside of the West Riding of Yorkshire, but it's still, it's still within Yorkshire. Um, over five years, the Yorkshire River killed 13 women as seriously wounded many more, and his territory lay in West Yorkshire, mainly between Bradford and Manchester, which is about 50 square miles, although there were some women in outlying areas, um, including... Um, a, he was caught in Sheffield, which is, uh, as you can see, outside of the... which is in South Yorkshire, outside of the main West Riding, um, and that's where I... that was my hometown and where I was living at the time. So, the case of the Yorkshire Ripper always intrigued me. 
mainly because of its close associations with the time and place of my own childhood, and partly because, unlike major criminal trials in the US, which are always covered in great detail by the media, Britain has, until very recently, never allowed cameras in the courtroom, and there are very strict laws governing media um, coverage of legal matters. So the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, has therefore remained a mystery. On television, all you ever saw of him, even at the time, were the same two or three family um, snapshots. Next. Next. That were published in the in the newspapers. Next. He was never um, shown on television. You never heard his voice. He never had a full identity as a real human being. And so, since the heart of the case remains a blank, it has a kind of cold, nostalgic eeriness about it, even today. So, uh, for those of you not familiar with the history of the case, Peter Sutcliffe, the man who later became known as the Yorkshire Ripper, was born in Bingley in the West Riding of Yorkshire into a Catholic working-class family. Reportedly a loner, he left school at age 15 and had a series of menial jobs, including two stints as a grave digger in the 1960s. Between November 1971 and April 1973, Sutcliffe worked at the Baird Television Factory on a packaging line. He left the factory when he was asked to go on the road as a salesman, selling televisions. And um, next image. This is the best book about the case, in my opinion. It's the book that most of my material is drawn from, Gordon Byrne's book, Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son. It came out in 1984. Um, Byrne recounts how, as a young man, Sutcliffe became obsessed with a waxwork museum that stood at the end of the pier in Morecambe, which is a very bleak little seaside town in the north of England. The upstairs floor of this museum once contained a pair of dark, sordid rooms called the Museum of Anatomy. The first of these rooms contained nine life-size female torsos with cross-sections cut from their lower abdomens, whose original function was to illustrate the nine stages of pregnancy to the Victorian public. So they were Victorian torsos. Next. These are not the, these are not the originals. I couldn't find images of the originals, but these were similar to, um, torsos. That I found images of these were, these were on sale um, at an auction at Sotheby's. Um, and these, so these are similar Victorian uh, torsos, waxwork torsos, illustrating the stages of pregnancy. The second... Um, room contained a macabre display of diseased genitals ostensibly designed to reveal the awful results of men leading immoral lives before marriage. According to Gordon Byrne, Peter Sutcliffe was fascinated by the Museum of Anatomy and would visit often lingering in the odd dilapidated medical exhibit which is described at some length in the book. Next. So Peter Sutcliffe married uh, Czech immigrant Sonia Surma in 1974. Um, and the following information is always given as attempts to look for motives behind his crime, his crimes and psychological explanations for what he did. Uh, Mrs. Sutcliffe suffered several miscarriages and a nervous breakdown shortly after the marriage, and the couple was informed she would not be able to have children. Um, she then began teacher training, during which time she had an affair with an ice cream truck driver. In February 1975, Sutcliffe took voluntary redundancy and used the payoff to train as a heavy goods driver 
and gained his license the same year. So then he began um, working as a driver for a tyre company. In This is in September 1976. Sorry, 1975. In March 1976, he was fired for the theft of used tyres. He was unemployed for a month, and then he found a, um, another job as a truck driver for a holdings company in Bradford. Um, when his wife completed her training in 1977, she began teaching. They used her salary to buy a house in Bradford, next, in, and to which they moved in September, where they remained until the time of Sutcliffe's arrest in 1981. And, um, and Mrs. Sutcliffe has still lived there. She's been divorced twice. And she still lives in the house in Bradford, and she um, she can't really sell it because all the um, any money she'd get would go to the victims of her sexual crimes. So she's kind of um, cursed to live in this house for the rest of her life. So I'll talk now about the the victims of the crimes. Um, there were th- thirteen fatalities, although there were also seven attempted murders, and at least um, I mean a number of others that we don't know about and. Others perhaps who survive. Um, and again, I also want to talk a little bit as I go through these uh, about the, um, the social and cultural circumstances of the time. So, the first, first slide, please. Um, the first murder was um, Wilma McCann. She was aged 28, killed in Leeds in um, October 1975. And now, all of the, the first victims were described as prostitutes, and they were prostitutes, but it's kind of, um, as, with the, as with the Whitechapel victims, I mean, nobody is really like a full-time prostitute, so they were women who were currently hard on their luck or temporarily working as prostitutes, but because they were killed in the act of prostitution by someone they picked up, that's how they go down in history. But um, so, it's, so it's kind of a, it's kind of unfortunate that that's how they're remembered. Um, Wilma McCann was um, on this evening in October. She'd been drinking heavily. After the pub closed, she tried to hitch a ride home. She was picked up by Sutcliffe. He employed what would become his signature, which later got him the name of, of the Yorkshire Ripper. He first disabled her by beating around the head with a ball-peen hammer. Once she's stunned to the ground, he lifts up her skirt, uh, cuts her abdomen and genitals with a knife. She's unconscious. He slashes and mutilates her genitalia and stomach, and then he dumps her sexually assaulted and mutilated body. The next, please. So the next victim was Emily Jackson, age 42. This is three months later, also in Leeds. So this is another example um, that is a good example of the frail line between prostitutes and women who are just temporarily down on their luck. Emily um, and her husband were close to losing their family home, they, so they agreed that Emily needs to work the streets for a while to get some more money in. Um, they both agreed to it. They, Emily was using the company van. Her husband would drive her. It was something that they were, she and her husband agreed upon while they... Um, while, they were, while his husband was temporarily out of work. Um, she, uh, she would use a company van to service clients in the streets and car parks at Leeds. 
But on this Tuesday night, 20th of January 1976, she was um, working the streets on her own and she got into Sutcliffe's car. He stabbed her over 50 times with a screwdriver um, and stamped on her legs even after she, she was dead. Next, please. So this, the next, um, next victim was one month later in Leeds, another prostitute. By this time, prostitutes knew that women um, were preying on them in Leeds, but like most women in her profession, she had no choice. She was close to homeless, she was broke, she had two children with foster parents. Um, Sutcliffe smashes her skull so severely it penetrates her brain. His savage stabbing disembowels her, he covered her body with the, her coat, and it's at this point in February 1977 that the press gives him the nickname of the Yorkshire Ripper. But he's still not really taken that seriously. So he's still killing prostitutes. Um, next. The next victim was in Bradford two months later. Patricia Atkinson, age 32, in April 1977. Um, so far, Sutcliffe's been murdering women in the streets. Patricia Atkinson is a divorced mother of three. She's a prostitute, but she only works from her home. So as the attacks so far have taken place outside, she feels pretty safe, but she lets him in. Uh, he hammers the back of her head, um, and this time he can't be disturbed, so it's a more violent mutilation. He uses a chisel, stabs her six times, and mutilates her body with a knife. Then the next victim comes two months later. Next slide. And um, this was the, the, the victim that sort of raised this case to national proportions because um, this was the first, what the press called the first innocent victim. Um, she was only 16. And this happened two months later in Leeds again. Um, this was a girl who was just working in a shop. She was not a prostitute. She had dismissed her bus hailed a taxi, couldn't get one, just walking home, walking past the playground. Um, Sutcliffe, as he did with the other woman, came up behind her, delivered three quick blows to her head, dragged her to waste ground, and repeatedly stabbed her to death and disemboweled her. And um, so until now, like the woman killed by the original Ripper, Sutcliffe's, Sutcliffe's victims were mostly women who were prostitutes at the time or in the ludicrous euphemism of the tabloid press, good time girls. But um, so when Jane McDonald was killed, um, this was the, when the press called her the first of Sutcliffe's innocent victims. There was a lot of controversy. Um, but, um, but at this point, the, the case um, became nationally... It, it came to national attention. Um, next slide. This is the... This is the kind of um, picture that I remember seeing in the newspapers at the time. Um, and in, in one of the things that I really liked about the Gordon Byrne book is that unlike many of the other authors writing about the Sutcliffe case and unlike a great deal of crime fiction, Gordon Byrne resists the tendency to overreach and exaggerate and to make monstrous. He has no um, illusions about the tedium of Peter Sutcliffe's life or the fact that, by all accounts, he was a very ordinary man, no different from thousands of similar men who went to work in factories and mills, drive trucks or buses, married men who sometimes pick up prostitutes. After work, he'd just go and sit in the pub, with, have a drink with his mates, and then he'd go home for his dinner, 
and then most nights just spent watching television with his wife, just led a very ordinary, boring life. Um, the next um, attack came four months later in April, sorry, October 1977 in Manchester. Next slide. And this is where um, Sutcliffe made a, a terrible mistake and would, would have been caught had not the police um, made even greater mistakes in their search. Um, the police were you know, really incompetent in, the, in this, the hunt for the ripper. So he paid Jean Jordan, who um, he picked up as a prostitute, with a brand new five pound note from his pay packet because it had just been paid. And um, he, killed the, he hid the body after killing her. Then later he realized like, what an incriminating um, piece of evidence this would be because it could be easily traced to, to his company. Um, and um, he waited a week before, it was a week before he could get the opportunity to drive back to the body, to where the body was because it hadn't been found. And the only time he got the opportunity was after he'd attended a housewarming party with his wife, and um, he volunteered to drive some guests home, and then, on the way back to the party, returned to the body. But he was unable to find the banknote because um, Jean Jordan had placed it in, had a secret compartment in her purse where she'd placed the note. So instead of being able to take away the banknote, he was... Sutcliffe was so furious and frustrated, he tried to make the attack look like it was performed by a different killer. So he tried to um, cut her head off so it didn't look like a ripper attack. But he was unable to do it with the tools he had available because he wanted to detract attention from the police attention from the ripper. So he um, just created an eight-inch deep post-mortem wound in the neck. Um, next, next victim, that was three months later, Bradford, January 1978. Sutcliffe killed Yvonne Pearson. Her body was not discovered until March. Um, he, he hid it under a discarded sofa. Next victim um, was ten days later in Huddersfield in January 1978. Um, this was um, one of the only victims that the police knew for sure that he had sex with um, after he knocked her to the ground as she was dying. Um, they didn't find uh, semen in many of the bodies, but they did in, this one, in Helen Ricker's body. Um, she was only 18. He stabbed her through the lungs and heart, um, had sex with her as she was dying. She had a twin sister. She was a prostitute, and she had a twin sister who was also a prostitute, and they were working together. The twin sister knew that Helen was missing, but didn't uh, report her for another two days because she was afraid of the police. Um, um, so it, it was uh, a while before Helen's body was found. Um, the next victim was three months later, Vera Millwood, age 41, who was killed in Manchester in May 1978. This was after a 10-week lull. She was 41-year-old, mother of seven. Um, and this is a really, uh, you know, if, if if the other cases haven't been tragic enough. Um, Vera was in pain after an operation, had gone out to the hospital to get some painkillers. She was killed in the parking lot of the Manchester Royal Infirmary. <laughs> if you might imagine that. Uh, Sutcliffe slashed her stomach so severely that she's disemboweled. 
Her screams were heard by a father, and a father visiting his son in, in a hospital room. And um, if you look at the, ne- if you show the next image, it's the um, Millward's body in the parking lot, and you can see that they've they've used like the surgical sh- the screens that they they just get the screens out of the hospital to cover up the body. And one of the doctors has come down in a white coat. This has been taken through the um, through the wire of the parking lot. So it looks like I mean it was it looks like it broad daylight. Um, so another little little sidetrack. Working class life in the north of England um, at the time, as no doubt everywhere, can be grim and bitter. The stultifying monotony of one day barely distinguishable from the next. In Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son, um, Gordon Byrne evokes this cheerless tedium in suffocating detail. He describes Pete and his mate sitting around in the pub after work and on weekends with nothing to talk about, nothing to do but drink, their barren routines broken up only by football games, cricket matches, family functions, birthdays, funerals, weddings, anniversaries. Wives and mothers were critical. You had to get married if you wanted any kind of family life, but that doesn't mean they were inviolable. Women still needed to be put in their place every now and again, shown who was boss. Most men gave the missus a regular backhander or a clip round the ear whenever she stepped out of line. The women were regularly slapped and beaten. Um, it was just natural. That's what you did if you were a man. Something that was as taken for granted as making offensive jokes about your mother-in-law or picking up prostitutes on the sly, which everyone, all men did. Um, there were... 11 months of inactivity after this murder, between this murder and the next one, because um, Sutcliffe's mother was in declining health. So he was looking after his mother. He wasn't able to kill anyone else until his mother died of heart disease, 8th of November, 1978. And then he could go back to killing prostitutes. He was back on the streets on April 1979 in Halifax, 11 months later. That's the next image. Uh, Josephine Whitaker. She's a 19-year-old bank clerk. Now, by, by now, um, the police are really active in the hunt, and he, he's becoming um, a little careless. Um, uh, can you go to the next image? Again, this is, this is Josephine Whitaker's body. Again, this is the kind of, as a kid, this is the kind of image I, rem- I remember seeing in papers, in the newspapers, just like a... Um, that was all you saw, just like a... a a blanket over a body on the ground. Um, Again, sexual crimes weren't an aberration. They were part of the misogyny endemic to British working-class life with its boredom and its odd puritanism. The late 1970s were particularly redolent of this hypocrisy. It was a time of dirty postcards, smutty jokes, carry-on films, a leering Benny Hill being chased around by half-dressed women on TV, a time of blue comedians in smoke-filled working men's clubs, in his character, as in his crimes, Sutcliffe was entirely representative of his class, gender, and generation, with its simultaneous fixation and disgust with female sexuality. But it was as though this truth couldn't be spoken. It had to be twisted and made into something further from home, and that seems to be why it became this demon, this fiend who prowled the streets and alleyways, this depraved monster who does unspeakable things, rather than just a, um, an extension of ordinary male working-class life. Um, 
at this point, in, um, after the Josephine Whitaker murder in 1979, came uh, an interlude um, when the police received, rather like the police in the Whitechapel murders, a tape um, from actually a, a hoaxer, but it, it wasn't known as a hoaxer at the time, known as Wearside Jack. Everybody who lived in Yorkshire at the, at the time can remember this audio tape, and it was supposedly from the Ripper, sent to the West Yorkshire Chief Constable George Oldfield, who, um, who was really getting a lot of really stigmatized in the press because he was you know, just getting nowhere at all with the, with the Ripper investigation. And I remember this tape, they played it over and over again on the radio and on television, um, through special, they even like set up speakers in the bus shelters. There was a dialed Ripper phone line that you could phone to hear the voice of the Ripper. Um, and it's this crackly recording that seemed to emphasize the mockery of the voice with its pronounced lisp. And it had an accent from Newcastle, Wearside, that led the papers and the police to come up with this nickname, Wearside Jack. Um, I just found out when I was researching this paper that the guy who made the hoax was was caught in 2006 and they traced it from the DNA on the envelopes um, that he'd, when he'd licked the envelopes to send it to the police and he was imprisoned for eight years for perverting the course of justice. But um, the the police, Oldfield believed this to be genuine and so um, everyone was looking for someone with a Newcastle accent and I have a clip of the tape. I don't know if it'll play. Um, it's in the next slide. I reckon your boys let you down, George. You can't think much good, can you? Everyone heard that tape? Mm-hmm. It's, pretty, it's pretty creepy. Um, and as a kid, like, hearing it everywhere, it, re- it was really... Even though, even though it turned out to be a hoax, it was really frightening. Um, yeah, even though it wasn't actually... Even though it was a hoax, there was something really frightening about it. Um, Anyway, it's easy to hear online. You can just type in Wearside Jack and hear it. Um, it, tended, it turned out to be a hoax. So that just sent the police in completely the wrong direction. And um, 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 and delayed the... Put the... Um, ended up... Um, yeah, delaying um, the police for a long time. So, yeah, next image. This is Barbara Leach, the next victim... Five months later, September 1979, was killed in Bradford. Um, she was a student, um, um, age 20. She died instantly from the first hammer blow. She was dumped un- under a carpet. Now, by now, Sutcliffe has been interviewed by the police nine times. Um, his, his friends at work... Like, there are photo fits everywhere of um, the Ripper, and, who, and in the photo fits he has a beard, and he looks exactly like Peter Sutcliffe, and Sutcliffe's friends at work nickname him the Yorkshire Ripper because he looks so much like the photo fits. Um, he, he matches several forensic clues. When the police actually found Jean Jordan's body, and they, they found the five-pounder, and they traced it to his company and they traced it to a list of 300 names, and his name was one of them. Um, He was still not strongly suspected. Um, So then in April 1980, he was arrested for drinking and driving. And this threatened his job, of course, because he was a long-distance truck driver. So finally, things 
are starting to unravel for him. Um, while awaiting trial, he wasn't able to, um, to work. He was kind of stuck at home. He killed two more women. Um, Eleven months later, in Leeds, he killed Margot Walls. That's the next victim. This was, uh, and he killed them on foot. He wasn't driving. He wasn't able to get away in a car or truck. Um, this was his oldest victim. She was a civil servant. She was working late. And it was August 20th, 1980. She was walking home along Wellit Street in, in Leeds. Um, Sutcliffe attacked her, hit her with his hammer but had forgotten his knife, so strangled her to death. Um, and you can see here that he's really um, breaking down, losing it. And um, the next victim was his last victim, um, Jacqueline Hill, his, his, his last known victim at least. Three months later, age 20, in November 1980, um, killed in Leeds, um, on Monday, 17th of November, she was a student. Um, she walked past a Kentucky Fried Chicken where Sutcliffe was sitting eating. He left the Kentucky Fried Chicken and followed her. She was very nearly home when he attacked her. He dragged her body behind some bushes and stabbed her to death. Can you see the, the next image, David? This was the death site. Um, so again, that's the kind of thing I saw in the newspapers, a body covered with a blanket. When I was a child growing up in Sheffield, I remember adults lowering their voices whenever the subject of the Ripper came up. Nobody ever actually spoke about what he did when he got hold of you. So, you know, I was a kid at this time, eight or nine, and I, I, didn't, really, I didn't really know what he did to these women they didn't give details in the newspapers, which made it all the more terrifying. There were no photographs, except on the, of the latest victim on a happier occasion. And there was an occasional blurred image like this of a, a heap covered by a raincoat in the grass. Um, Sutcliffe was finally arrested on 2nd of January 1981. Next slide, please. In Sheffield, um, he was picking up a prostitute called Olivia Rivers. He was arrested for having a dodgy brake light on his car and um, when he was arrested the police found a saw and other tools on his possession and um, at various events he was kept in custody and finally the next day he admitted to being to being the Yorkshire Ripper and um, next image at his trial this is him emerging from the Old Bailey to meet a screaming mob and um, I just find it ironic that it's, it's his head that's covered by a raincoat, finally, in this image. Um, so, I know that um, I have a lot, lots of time left, but I'm just going to conclude by saying a little bit more about the murders and the context um, in which they took place. Sutcliffe confessed that after each murder, he, he felt an overwhelming sense of well-being, and usually drove home and, he said, slept peacefully in bed with his wife. He said he attacked at least 22 women over six years, and 13 of whom didn't survive. Um, in, in his book, Gordon Burns explains that the murders were a private, secret part of Sutcliffe's life, 
A dirty urge that sometimes popped up its ugly head, an urge that wouldn't ever entirely leave him alone, though sometimes he believed it had gone for good. His immediate motives remain unclear, but there are certain reports about things that happened to him as a child that have been um, given as attempted motives. He was humiliated by a prostitute in a pub as a young man. He picked up a um, venereal infection from another as a young man. Around the same time, he found out that Sonia, who was then his fiancée, was involved with another man. He found out his mother was cheating on his dad. During his trial, these episodes were used as the foundation for an insanity defense, which was unsuccessful. The jury felt that Sutcliffe must have known what he was doing, and they decided, and I think this is right, that if a person was schizophrenic, they would show signs of it more than you know, a few nights a year. Um, and Sutcliffe didn't. He... Um, um, he did what, basically what goes on all the time in the form of domestic violence as well as on television and movies or just in private fantasy and the difference between Peter Seckler and other um, working class English men at the time is a difference of degree and not, in car- uh, not, not of kind. But um, if Seckler wasn't the ripper then, he did soon become the ripper. And I think that... Um, the jury was right to decide that he wasn't psychotic, but he did have an eventual psychotic break soon afterwards, and that may well have been occasioned by his dawning realisation that never again would anyone see him as the mild, attractive, shy young man he'd always assumed himself to be. Once he'd confessed, he had to wear the mask, play the part, carry the full burden of public hate that had been festering in tabloid vitriol for the last six years. Um, and there's a... Um, the psychiatrist R.D. Lang talks about, in, in his book The Divided Self, he talks about how society produces schizophrenia. I think you know, perhaps there's something similar going on there. Not, not that there aren't sex murders in every culture and every um, time in society, but in a way it's after the fact that, that the breakdown occurs in, in this case and um, very shortly after he had... Um, his trial, he was sent to Broadmoor, where he remains. But I think he was just—I think he's recently been found. Do you know, Christopher? I think he's recently been found cured, and he's been recently been um, been told that he can like return to the prison population, which he, he doesn't want to do. So I think they've recently decided that he's 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 no longer insane. But you know, it's been forty years or something that he's been in Broadmoor. He's very old now. Um, and here's something else that I learned from the case of the Yorkshire River that from the details of the I mean I became fascinated by you know however now looking at the crimes I find them obviously kind of horrifying but I didn't know those horrifying details as a kid I just found them I just found something really compelling about this this monstrous frightening exciting Thing that was going on that I, I was really fascinated and terrified by, and I think it's, I think it's my experience growing up during this time that made me has made me really fascinated by true, true crime. Um, I realised that if you get deeply enough into the banal, things do start to look interesting. If you focus intently on the commonplace, you can go all the way in and come out the other side 
you can go through the mirror and discover something terrifying, amazing, miraculous. Strange as it may seem, there, there can be horror in the everyday, magic and wonder lurking in the ordinary details of familiar domestic lives, like the dusty museum of anatomy in the bleak seaside town. When I'm absorbed in reading about true crime, I can believe, at least for a while, that although things might seem dull on the surface, in the hidden gaps and corners of life, strange, terrible things are happening. Suicide cults, modern-day cannibals, hacksaw murders, a torso hidden under the floorboards, a severed finger in a jar of jam. Probably not so much in the 1970s, but there's a certainly um, forensics. I mean, at Broadmoor, the, his forensic psychiatrists work, have been working with him. But from what um, from what I can gather, he um, if if he himself didn't know, except to talk about these experiences as a child, you know, he talked about um, delusions when he was a grave digger and believing that God was speaking to him from the graves and then talking about these experiences with prostitutes. But, you know, if he himself doesn't know, um, I think there's only so much material has been released, really, about him. And I think that, um, like I'm saying, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily think it's that is so much of an aberration than, than perhaps it's, he seems to be. Um, but yes, I mean, there, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly um, like forensic specialists who work on sex murders who, who've probably been working with Peter Settler for, for a long time. I mean, he's certainly never going to be released back into the community. But um, no one's going to, not, none of these psychiatrists are going to publish a book about why maybe 20 years after he's dead they might whereas in America we love to throw it out with documentaries yeah yeah that's true yeah I mean um, perhaps after perhaps after his death Um, but I think you know any any kind of um, attempt to understand is 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 just complete speculation yes he was uh, attacked while in jail by a fellow prisoner and I think Plus side of one eye, I think it was a, actually a pen or something that yeah. shoved right. into his face. Yeah, that was yeah, that was pretty early on when he was in prison. Yeah, you know? yeah, it was not really safe for him to be in prison. At, mm. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. the, the, um, the thing is that these types of killers, just as um, killers of children, do attract attacks from other prisoners. Yeah. Uh, just three small additions. 
at that time, I was visiting Leeds every year to see my daughters who were with their mother, from whom I was estranged at that point. I was then staying at one side of Leeds, they were the other. I put them down at night and walked back, and I realized when it turned under that stress, I was watching every man across the road to see if he would make an advance dangerously on anyone, in which case I'd have gone across to go. Because years later I thought, of course, they must have been watching me exactly the same way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, secondly, my daughters were mid-teens at that time, and you were talking about the hostile attitudes to women. Then, in the mid-teen world, that was turned on Jane MacDonald, where they said she was no better than she ought to be. It isn't a fact that she was out with a boyfriend in the park that night that she was coming back from. They said, yeah, yeah, well, she was putting it out, wasn't she? And she asked for what she got. That was the teen girl's response at that point. Uh, and then I'd say that the policing was a lot better than it's given credit for. Right. That tape misled them very, very badly. Why on earth they didn't recognize it, since he was an ex-policeman who was attacked. Uh, really? George. Yes. Um, he, he, had, uh, he felt that his career had been damaged by him. And so he, they, somebody ought to have picked him out in the police, but they didn't. They, since they took that seriously, they dismissed Sutcliffe as soon as they heard his unbreakable Bradford accent. Um, but they were not stupid to take that tape seriously because they were examining it for forensic traces closely and there was machine oil on it. Oh, really? Which was identical with machine oil found on one of the victims. So they thought this had come from the same workspace, but of course it hadn't. It's just um, I was wondering how much that that hoaxer John Hamble was aware of the Whitechapel hoaxes because the you know the language of the hoax is very similar to the, the second Dear Boss letter about you know you can't be that smart and I was wondering how whether it was a deliberate um, replay of that of that that well, I have no idea. yeah and the same with with Sutcliffe I'm wondering how aware he was of the I mean, he must have heard of Jack the Ripper, but was he, you know, was there some, to some extent, was he kind of deliberately replaying the, the Ripper murders, um, or was it something spontaneous? It's, it's not something that I'm aware of. You know, I, I, I'd almost say that the use of the hammer makes him different to the original Ripper if he was trying to strictly emulate uh, Jack the Ripper, he would have just used a knife, I should think. Yeah, and had obviously no anatomical knowledge at all. And, um... What was the nickname you said was given to Anthony Hardy? The, uh, um, the Camden Ripper. Camden's an area of London. Thank you. And then there's the Chesapeake Ripper, of course. Well, you, you know, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> Another aspect is, you know, the ever since eighteen eighty eight, there have been various murders um, reported in the press, and they weren't always, um, you know, it, it was the crime itself, not especially the fact that it was ripper-like in terms of um, uh, the use of the knife. It, it was um, the fact that. Somebody was killing people, and um, <clears throat> I think it was more the fear um, 
that got sensationalized in the press and yeah. they would say, here's the Baltimore Ripper right. or here's the <coughs> Washington DC yeah. Ripper. And so so you, don't, you don't actually have to rip to be a Ripper? Well, I, I know, but um, uh, it's been my impression uh, studying a number of the articles in subsequent years to 1888 that they didn't have to be Ripper-like. It was, but again, it was the name of that bogeyman idea of um, the rivers in town and you should be uh, afraid. Yeah, I remember at the time, um, as a kid, I was playing with a little girl who was a, a neighbor, neighbor kid, and she, and she said that she, had to, she wasn't allowed to stay out late because um, her parents were afraid of Jack Maripa. And um, I realized that it was, like, it was like a combination of the Yorkshire Ripper and Jack the Ripper that she, she like, picked up both and made them into one. Kind of creative. Just one more comment. You being that young, that is a perfect uh, fiction novel coming up. Mm. Having young, that fear there. Actually, Ripper Talbot, they did that for a girl named Selena. You remind me so much of Selena. <laughs> so, but, but that's tomorrow, the fiction Thank you. And that was Makita Brotman at the Baltimore Ripper Convention with her talk on Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Rippercast will be releasing nearly all of the talks from Baltimore, as well as two panel discussions, possibly every weekend until we run out of all of these recordings. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Robert Anderson for taking it upon himself to record these talks in my absence from the conference, to all the speakers who've cooperated with this project, and to Chris George on the conference organizing team. Again, please visit Makita Brotman's website at makitabrotman.com or search for her on Amazon to find all of her books. We are a podcast hosted by the website casebook.org where you can stream or download all of our 70-some-odd episodes as well as take part in a discussion forum for each show. And you can also find us on Facebook at the Rippercast True Crime Discussion Group, follow us on Twitter for updates, and subscribe to the show via the iTunes Music Store. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Rippercast, and we'll see you next time.